This episode of Market Foolery is brought to you by NetSuite, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy to use cloud platform. Download their free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, today at netsuite.com. It's Wednesday, July 10th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Back in studio, and fortunately here with me is Jason Moser. Thanks for being here. Hey, listen, it's it's a pleasure to be here. I, I know you probably want a couple of more days of vacation, but we're glad to have you back. It's nice to be back. <laughs> uh, I'm rested. I'm ready. And we've got a full plate. We've got earnings news. We've got healthcare, cosmetics news. We're going to dip into the full mailbag. Let's start with the restaurant industry. McDonald's franchisees here in the United States want a premium chicken sandwich, and they want it right now. <laughs> Don't we all? This, this kind of uh, this comes from a board of an independent group of McDonald's franchisees who've published a letter saying a chicken sandwich at McDonald's should be our top priority. And I don't run a McDonald's, but looking at the business, I think they're spot on. Yeah, this should be their number one priority. Uh, yeah, I, I think so too. I mean, there, there there is a medical term for this. It's called Chick Fil A phobia, and that's really <laughs> where this stems from. Is all of the success that Chick Fil A has had through the years. Uh, we look at just the raw numbers here, and now Chick Fil A is set to become the third biggest U.S. Restaurant chain by sales behind McDonald's and Starbucks. I guess that makes sense, though we never really recognize Starbucks for the food. I mean, but you know, whatever. They go in the category. They do. And I think, you know, it makes a lot of sense. Now, when you think about this idea that Chick fil A is a much smaller concept, right? I mean, somewhere in the neighborhood of 25, closing in on 2,500 stores, and that's Basically, just a domestic play, though they are uh, trying to spread their wings a little bit internationally, and and so for McDonald's, that I think they see as a tremendous opportunity, particularly if you consider the fact, you know, Chick Fil A is closed on Sundays, and and we like to make you know some jokes here and there about that because imagine if they were open on Sunday, how much money they would bring in. I I don't think they will open on Sundays. I don't think that really matters. It's not a publicly traded company, but I think McDonald's looks at that as a big opportunity to say, hey. There are probably people out there that want a Chick Fil A sandwich on Sunday and can't get it. So if we have a, a similar offering, uh, you know, not only does that help us on Sunday, but probably other six days of the week too. Well, you think back a few years when they were debating internally the idea of breakfast all day, and we were sitting here in this studio, and when we were not alone, there were plenty of people who just sort of looked at this and said, "That's a no-brainer. Of course, mm-hmm. you should do that. You know, make that happen." This idea seems exactly the same to me. When I saw this letter from this independent board, which, which I believe just started up last year, an independent board of franchisees here in the United States, I just looked at it and thought, yeah, that absolutely makes sense. And I think if I'm assuming Easterbrook is going to get asked this on the next conference call, and um, he better have a good answer. I mean, I say that like he hasn't done a good job running the company. Right. He's done a very good job ever since he became CEO. No question. So I expect this to be put in motion and executed. I would imagine so. I mean, again, I think that when you look at what the success that McDonald's has had to this point here with Steve Easterbrook, a lot of that is around menu innovation, uh, catching the company up with today's technology, and and I think that um, you know when you when you look at where people are eating, I mean, you, 
you're getting that boots on the ground research really from the franchisees, right? This isn't one executive at McDonald's saying, "Oh, we should try this." I mean, this is a collective of a lot of people that are running these stores on a daily and weekly basis, and they're they're able, I think, to give a little bit more uh, relevant feedback and insight as to what customers want. Um, and, and so, listen, I mean, you you drive. By any Chick Fil A, and it seems like at any any time of the day, the drive-through is backed up and the stores are packed. I mean, that's for a reason. Um, and so, certainly, it, it makes perfect sense to see McDonald's. And, and honestly, I mean, all of these restaurants should be looking at this as an opportunity, um, figuring out ways to change their menu up, bring something new to the table. And, and in this case, uh, again, I mean, I go back to the the big opportunity there in that hey, if you bring some type of a Chick Fil A offering. To your store, and you can offer it on a Sunday where you can't go get it elsewhere. That probably is going to bring in a few incremental sales there, and and that is never a bad thing when it comes to restaurants. Pepsi's second quarter profits and revenue came in higher than expected. Shares up a little bit. This is uh, from yesterday, but I know you were looking into this. Uh, I was struck by the fact that uh, Ramon Laguarda, who's the CEO, took over for um, Indra Nui. Uh, and we talked on this show about uh, you know she left some big shoes to fill. Mm-hmm. It seems like they're you know off to a pretty good start. He came out and said that uh, Bubbly, which is their sparkling water brand that Pepsi owns, uh, he's he said that's going to be our next billion dollar brand. Um, I have to assume he's right about that. And I think if you're a Pepsi shareholder, you're hoping he's right about that because once again, sort of traditional. Soda sales continue to incrementally decline in the United States. Yeah, big shoes to fill and a soda stream strategy to try to figure out. Um, remember, they they made that big acquisition right as New You was walking out the door. Uh, I think it's worth remembering that diversity really is Pepsi's biggest strength. I mean, it's not just diversity in the beverage. Market. I mean, clearly the salty snacks and the Quaker Foods division are paying off as well. Um, and, and I think that you know the, the Frito Lay part of the business. It was the North American snacks division really performed well. And and it's worth noting too the Quaker division turned in its strongest quarter of organic growth in three years with sales up organically three um, percent. So so you know you saw some contribution there from a lot of different players. And management did note. In the call, that the back half of the year is shaping up to be a tougher one, based on some tough comparables from a year ago. Um, when it comes to SodaStream, still not a whole lot of clarity as to how that's going to play out in in the company strategy. Really, the only talk of SodaStream was from the perspective of. Eliminating waste and uh, conserving resources, eliminating plastic, and not not that that's a bad thing. I mean, that's a good thing, obviously. But that was about a three and a half billion dollar acquisition. So I think you're going to have to justify that at some point or another. Uh, all in all, I mean, the stock I don't think looks cheap today. I mean, when you look at their full year expectations, it's around 24 times those full year expectations. However, nothing in this market looks cheap. And I mean, it's worth noting that PepsiCo is a dividend aristocrat. They are yielding close to 3%. I think that they take a lot of pride in that dividend. It will continue to go up. They will maintain that dividend aristocrat status. So, for income-seeking investors, I think these types of companies are always worth a look. If you've been to a CVS, you've probably seen Minute Clinic, which is the retail medical clinic that CVS operates. This morning, CVS announced Minute Clinic is rolling out its virtual visit in eight new states, Arkansas, Connecticut, Hawaii, Indiana, Minnesota, Missouri, Oklahoma, 
Texas, and maybe not a surprise, they're partnering with your friends at Teladoc to do it. Well, that is not a surprise because that's been their partner from the very get go. And, you know, it's really been impressive to see how quickly this landscape has changed because. I think one of, if not the biggest challenge for telemedicine early on was simply from a regulatory point of view. I mean, the regulations just didn't accommodate for it. Um, and, and we've seen very quickly those barriers have been all but eliminated as, as states now all are able to cope with telemedicine. Insurance carriers are allowed to, to deal with it now as well. We're opening up to these brand new market opportunities with Medicare Advantage patients and whatnot. Um, and so, I think that it's really encouraging to see a company like CVS doing this because one of their big one of the big points of their strategy going forward is to utilize that physical sore base that they have in in changing them kind of really becoming less like that retail store where you might buy Easter candy in a Coke and like some knockoff brand of an MP3 player and instead saying hey we've got these physical presences that can now serve as uh, sort of little makeshift hospitals and and part of that strategy includes the telemedicine and, and I think that when you look at how telemedicine is being received by people, that's also really encouraging. There was a health study that CVS had earlier that found that 95% of patients who opted to receive a telehealth visit during the pilot phase of this program, 95% were highly satisfied with the quality of care. In that same study, 95% of patients were also satisfied with the convenience of using telehealth. And so, now this expands it to 26 states and D.C. I think it's just a matter of time until we see it in every state where CVS is. Uh, which I think is probably all 50. Um, and and uh, so between CVS and Teladoc Health and, and any other telemedicine provider, I think it's a very encouraging sign. Well, and particularly if you think about the rural population, you look at Absolutely. these eight states, and I mean, there's just a huge rural population. It's there are just fewer places to get to. It's harder to get to. It takes more time, and so telemedicine becomes much more crucial. Absolutely. I mean, we're seeing that. I mean, you know, these earthquakes in California. I think we're another good example where uh, you have a lot of people who are sort of stranded and they can't really get from one place to the other. There are needs uh, that need to be filled, particularly on the healthcare side. Uh, so you see uh, telemedicine providers reaching out, uh, partnering with companies like CVS in order to be able to provide those services. And it, so it really it addresses two problems in healthcare of of not only getting into areas where healthcare isn't really as prevalent, but also uh, scaling healthcare on a global basis. I mean, taking what essentially is a shrinking pool of physicians and healthcare providers and offering those services to a bigger audience. And I think that's one of the most encouraging things that investors should uh, keep their eyes on. Lady Gaga announced a line of beauty products that will be exclusively for sale on Amazon. And there are plenty of times when a huge tech company, and I'm thinking primarily of Alphabet, Amazon, and Apple, when they dabble in a space, and sometimes there's a real concern for other companies, smaller companies in that space, and sometimes it's just it is literally just dabbling. Yeah. Um, this is squarely aimed at Ulta Beauty. Yep. And LVMH, parent company of Sephora. There's no, there's no question that this that Amazon has done their dabbling in beauty products and cosmetics, and they've decided this is a business they want to be in, and this is 
a big move in that direction. Yeah, I mean, it does make sense. This is a huge market when you look at the global color cosmetics market. I mean, it's going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of sixty-three to sixty-five billion dollars by two thousand and twenty-four. So it is significant. It matters, and um, I mean, to see this type of Offense in the face of, I mean, recently we saw Cody, which is another provider in this space, really kind of caught falling back on its heels there, um, having a lot of problems. So Amazon, I think, looking to, to strike and gain a little bit of share in, in the face of that. It's certainly a response, I think, to, to Ulta and its affiliation with another popular brand in the space, Kylie Cosmetics. I mean, I don't profess to know the most about uh, makeup, but I do live with three women, Chris. So I See this stuff on a daily basis, and I understand it. It is, it is the makeup market that that cosmetics market is reliable as the sun coming up. I mean, it is just one of those things that's going to exist. And so, I mean, from the perspective of Amazon, I think it's a smart move. I would not make the leap to say, oh man, this is going to be a real problem for Ulta going forward, because you know this isn't the first time Amazon's tried to dabble in the space, and Ulta has has done a very good job. Not only competing in this space, but growing market share in this space as well. I mean, they have 1,200 stores now, 500 brands in those stores, and Ulta provides a little bit something different. You're not going to be able to get on Amazon, and that's that uh, the salon dynamic. So, I mean, folks are actually going to Ulta stores for a reason, and the numbers bear it out. They keep on going back, and they've got a pretty nice loyalty program that I think creates a, a fairly sticky customer base. Some investments there in technology, bringing in an augmented reality platform so that users can now try that stuff on virtually to get a better idea of whether it's something they may like or not like without having to necessarily go to the store. So, certainly understandable why Amazon would want to dabble a little bit more in this market. I suspect they will witness some success tying up with a popular brand like Lady Gaga. Of course, the risk that always comes with that is that that person that you're tying the brand to bows out at some point or does something that people don't like, and then you deal with that. But all in all, I think it's a pretty smart move. I'm glad you mentioned Ulta Beauty's loyalty program, because they've had such great success with that. And I'm sure that's one more reason Amazon is pushing into this market, because they look and they think, oh, you know what? We have we also have a loyalty program. It's yep. called Prime, <laughs> and we feel like we can leverage it. Kind of powerful. Uh, quick shout-out to NetSuite. If you don't know your numbers, you don't know your business, and the problem growing businesses have that keeps them from knowing their numbers is the patchwork quilt of business systems. You got one for accounting, another for sales, another for inventory. It's just a big, inefficient mess. It takes up too much time and too many resources, and that hurts the bottom line. You already know that because you're running your business. Introducing NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy to use cloud platform. NetSuite gives you the visibility and control you need to grow. With NetSuite, you save time, money, and unneeded headaches by managing sales, finance, accounting, orders, and HR instantly right from your desktop or phone. And that is why NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system. And right now, NetSuite's offering you free, valuable insights with their guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits at NetSuite. Dot com slash fool. That's netsuite.com slash fool. Download your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits. Netsuite.com slash fool. It's free. What do you got to lose? Nothing. Our email address is marketfoolery at fool.com. Question from Ryan Galloway, who writes Longtime listener, first time writer. I'm concerned about my Netflix investment. I keep an investing notebook and I reviewed my thesis when conversations started about Disney's streaming service. I had a few points about 
provider of multiple sources of media for other companies, acting like a platform to bring companies and people together seemed like a strong suit. But over the last month or so, we've seen news about the loss of The Office and Friends and the Marvel and Disney properties. At what point does Disney start to fall behind here? Excuse me, at what point does Netflix start to fall behind here and become dethroned as a content leader? And yes, this ties nicely with uh, the announcement from Warner Media, uh, owned by AT&T, about the launch of HBO Max, which is yet another new streaming service, and they're going to have friends in their arsenal. Yeah, they are. They're going to have a lot in that arsenal. I think they. I mean, they're even getting like the Fresh Prince of Bel Air, and I mean, obviously with the HBO affiliation, plenty of HBO content. Um, a lot of stuff from the CW, which I mean that that attracts a very wide audience demographic, which is attractive, I think, you know, from from a not only a consumer's perspective but from an investor's as well. Um, I mean, I, I so I come at this from the perspective of I don't own Netflix shares. I never have. I mean, for me, it's it's always been just a more fascinating story to follow and learn from. Um, and, and the question I've always had with Netflix really. It centers more around how how much can they raise prices before people start to say, you know what, this is a little bit more than I'm really feeling. I don't feel like I'm getting the same value. You know, you can't raise prices forever. Um, I think we may be getting closer to that uh, than than perhaps even they thought some while ago. And I, you know, when you put some numbers around it, I think you start to get a better idea. Of of just how much a price increase does or doesn't help them, and so I mean, if you just look at it from the perspective of, at some point in the coming years, they're likely going to hit a subscriber base of around two hundred million. I, it, it's possible they don't, given the number of, of of competitors that are out there in the space now. But let's assume that they hit that base of two hundred million, and say they run through a two dollar price increase on that two hundred million dollar base. I mean, you're ultimately talking about close to five billion dollars a year in extra revenue that they would get from that. Now that sounds like a lot, but it actually doesn't even represent ultimately a third of what they're going to spend this year on content alone. And I mean that's no secret. We know that really what keeps this engine going is money spent on content. And and the thing is because all of this other content is going to these other services, that means that Netflix is going to probably have to focus on either spending more money to get higher quality content or they're just going to have to kind of keep with that strategy of having a lot of okay content and seeing their property is really just a sort of a main staple of people's entertainment platform and that's fine but you can only raise prices so much on that uh, premise as well too so you know it's I'm not sitting here saying sell Netflix don't get me wrong I mean even Netflix is Clearly, a very good business and a very, a very powerful brand that a lot of people are very passionate about. Um, I, I do think the questions as to how much they're going to be able to raise prices—that um, to me is the one that's going to be really the one to pay attention to in the coming years. And I, I don't know. I kind of feel like I kind of feel like they're closer to the end than the beginning there. But the battle for the living room has always been one of the more interesting fights to watch in the years that we've been doing this show, and I think. It only becomes more interesting as we have more of these players coming in. And when I'm referring specifically to content producers saying, okay, we've seen how powerful streaming can be. Um, And every question you just raised about Netflix in terms of money spent and pricing power, let's face it, that applies to everybody else too. That's why I think we all thought it was a smart move when Disney came out 
earlier in the year to unveil Disney Plus in a, in a much more thorough way. I think it was at their investor day. And that price was really low. That introductory yeah. price, and I think we all looked at that and thought, "That's real. That's really smart, right out of the oh, gate." I think so too. To keep that well below ten dollars a month. And I mean, Netflix did the same thing, too, yes. right? I mean, they've they've really. It's just they got started. They were the ones who founded this market early. I mean, they're the ones that started this whole thing, and and so they they did I think a very good job of starting out as just a tremendous value. It's just a no brainer. Like you would just subscribe to Netflix because it was such it was such a small amount. You'd never even notice it anyway. Oh, I. I Think we're kind of getting beyond that. It's such a small amount you don't notice it, and uh, I mean they are going to be losing two of the properties that garner the most viewership on their platform. I mean, and that's not their content. So they've been at making their own content for a while, um, and I know that people love to refer to the data and algorithms that help them dictate what they're going to make. But it's not that simple. If it was that simple, then everybody would be making something that is received as well as Friends and Seinfeld and The Office and whatnot. Art is not just algorithms and data, and that's what this stuff is. It's art. So you have to you have to understand that it's not that easy just to produce content that people love. And in Netflix's case, their argument, you know, or what they're doing is they're producing a lot of different content that caters to a very large cross section of people. So that is difficult in its own right. Um, and again, it just goes back to how much do you think? How much room do you think they have to be able to raise those prices um, until they till they hit that ceiling? And I, I, I just, it's no secret that this is a business that requires a lot of capital. It's going to continue to be that way for some time to come. Um, it, it's just a matter of how much they're going to be able to wring out of the consumer before the consumer starts pushing back and saying, you know what? There are a lot of other substitutes out there, and I don't necessarily need the subscription like I used to. I don't know if we answered Ryan's question, but I will say this: I love the fact that he keeps an investing notebook. I was going to say, man, and goes back and look like kudos, Ryan. That is tremendous. That's fantastic. Uh, real quick before we wrap up, because I was on Cape Cod and we yes. were talking earlier, you were like, "Hey, man, you asked me, yeah, what'd you see on your vacation? I'm going to ask you." Sure, um, tell me. So, two investing takeaways from my time on Cape Cod, and one. The seed was planted early when we were driving to Cape Cod, and my kids, who are a little bit older now, were talking about food and where are we going to go and eat and that sort of thing. And one of my kids looked up on her phone. She she just sort of got it in her head. I wonder how many Chipotle's there are on Cape Cod because she's a fan of <laughs> That's Chipotle. That's a good question. There's one. Wow. There's one, and it's in Hyannis. I guess that's not terribly surprising, though. It's not the most surprising thing. I mean, when you look at Cape Cod, obviously it's a much bigger population in the summer. It kind of clears out. It's a much smaller population in the winter. But that was sort of strange. And it sort of got me thinking about when you're looking at restaurants, you always, I mean, obviously any business you want to look at, what are their profit margins? And for startups, that tends not to matter because a lot of startups don't have profits yeah. right out of the gate. But I think with restaurants, to me, it was just a reminder that you can't count on expansion to be the sole driver of your returns. You you, you want to make sure that restaurants are actually operating profitably, have some measure of pricing power. Um, and related to that, I, I've got my new mug here from the Beachcomber, which is hey, a fantastic uh, beachside. Uh, bar and restaurant in Wellfleet, Cape Cod. Went there the last night we were there. Fantastic. And um, 
I was looking at the Beachcombers menu, and it made me think of Texas Roadhouse <laughs> because there's no dessert on the menu. Uh, <laughs> and, they, and you know, they're they're we were there with our kids. There are other people there with their kids. I mean, it's definitely a family vibe. But they clearly are taking a page out of the the Texas Roadhouse. Like, no, <laughs> we don't want you sitting around lingering eating dessert. We want you to leave. Like. Stay and have another drink or leave. Can I get a dessert menu? Yeah, here's the menu. There's an ice cream joint right down yeah. the street. Get out of here. It's you Cape Cod. Jerk. There's 50 ice cream <laughs> stores within a stone's throw of this place. Um, and then the other thing was not so much a numbers focus, but just largely about risk. I talked about this on an episode last summer when I talked about the shark flag. Oh, yeah. Um, the shark flag, for those unfamiliar, when you're on a beach, and they've got the lifeguard stands. They'll have different flags for different things. There'll be a flag that indicates, hey, it's rough surf out there, that sort of thing. There's also a flag with a shark on it. And it means exactly what you think. It means you'll find me at the beachcomber belly up with a craft beer in one hand. Right. I won't be body surfing today because the shark flag is flying. <laughs> and just that whole idea of... And so, a couple of days, we went to the Atlantic side of the Cape, and both days the beach, uh, the shark flag was flying. And so, I didn't really go into... You know, I put my toes in the water. I'm not going to go body surfing. And uh, the second day, there was a guy out there... On a paddleboard, and I just thought, "What are you doing? Why do you not see that the shark flag is flying?" We saw some seals going by, maybe a hundred feet offshore, and where there are seals, there are sharks. And, yeah. Um, so, but just that idea that it's nice to have a plainly obvious warning sign. And as I said last summer, you don't really get that with the market in investing. You get that with individual companies. You get that in. Specific instances, sometimes it's a CEO who's the warning flag yeah. for erratic behavior or something like that. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, it's a Groupon situation where where Groupon, when they were getting ready to go public in their S one filing, <laughs> they had the adjusted consolidated segment operating income, and yes. we were all like, I remember around the office, we were all like, "Have you seen it? Like, what is this?" And we we realized that it was essentially. Groupon's way of saying, well, if you just don't count our marketing expenses, this is how good our you know, balance sheet looks. Hey, listen, we live in a non-GAAP world now, Chris. And it's like, but you're a marketing company. <laughs> why, would, why in the world would we back out your marketing expenses? <laughs> um, anyway, so those were, those were two takeaways. Love it. Um, last but not least, pour one out for Rip Torn. Yeah. Acclaimed actor for anyone who saw the classic movie Dodgeball. He was Patches O'Houlihan. Throwing the wrench. Uh, if you can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball. Uh, Artie, the producer on The Larry Sanders Show. He forever, to me, is Artie. Just, I mean, could not have cast that part better. You know what? Do any of these streaming services have The Larry Sanders Show? HBO. Because, do they? They do. Because for a while, it wasn't on there. But I guess No, I guess that it had been... Because I know at one point, many, many moons ago, it was on Netflix for a period of time. But um, yeah, it's it's back on HBO's service. All right. I, know yep. what, I know what I'm watching this weekend. Jason Moser, thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Austin Morgan. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.